We have a full house this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon all together again for another big time Monday discussion. Happy Monday, all. Happy Monday. Monday. Okay, listen to all those voices. (laughs) Really good discussion. Let's get going. How can we expect the Republicans who have a supermajority in the legislature to change election law in Ohio? And do we think they're going to make it harder for urban residents to vote? Jane Cahoon, I am really suspicious of this, especially (laughs) since every elected leader boasted last year about how effective our election went. Well, the short answer to your question is we'll we'll find out in a week or two. But yeah, you know, we had been wondering with all of these Republican controlled states around the nation passing these voting restrictions, why hadn't Ohio taken any steps toward this? Because we know the mindset of our GOP legislative majority here. And, you know, we thought that maybe this wasn't on their minds because Trump won Ohio by eight points, you know, two elections in a row. And, you know, maybe we we thought they they wanted to leave well enough alone. But Andrew Tobias was able to break through and find out that there have been some private discussions going on, both in the House and the Senate, focused on, in fact, changing some of our election rules. But it does seem like kind of a mixed bag of restrictions and actual improvements to to voter access. So one thing, though, Chris, that's already, I know, got your antenna up is the, the fact that Representative Bill Seitz is, is working on this. He's the guy who thinks that House Bill 6 was not corrupt and the guy who worked behind the scenes to try to help utility lobbyists and, you know, also buys into like fringe COVID theories, apparently. He told Andrew there were like 215 things in there. He wouldn't go into details, but he said there's something in there for everybody to either love or hate. So, you know, fasten your seatbelt there. But he said the aim is to codify Secretary of State Frank LaRose's policies and, and directives into law. So that doesn't sound like a big thing. But and in fact, as I said, Andrew heard about a couple of things that most people would consider an expansion of voting rights, like automated voter registration that allows people to automatically update their registrations when they when they visit the BMV. Or um, maybe they're going to finally allow online applications for absentee ballot, which would be, you know, a big step into this century and one that LaRose has pushed for, because right now you still have to submit your application on a paper form. You can request it online, but you got to either print it out or or ask for them to send it to you. However, it's not going to surprise you that they're also talking about formally limiting or maybe even eliminating ballot drop boxes, except during states of emergency. And this gets to the heart of your question, Chris, about making it more difficult for urban voters. I don't think we need to rehash the whole big legal battle over these things from the last elections, but we know we were limited to like one location per county at the Board of Elections, which didn't work out so well, you know, for, for well, urban voters. Well, look, if, if the goal here is just to say what we had last year worked, that people pretty much were able to vote. And, and even though we, there was disagreement about the ballot drop boxes, they, they codify what we had, then fine. Then this doesn't seem like a dishonest, sinister plot to reduce the urban vote. I just don't trust them. And Bill Seitz is not a friend of Ohioans. I mean, he was working feverishly behind the scenes to protect First Energy, to take billions of dollars from Ohio residents and give it to the utilities. He's, he's not a guy that represents people. 
So you wonder what is his real motive? If they abolish ballot drop boxes altogether, then we're not where we were last year. Mm -hmm. If they make the absentee voting period shorter, that's not what we had last year. And I would expect then Frank LaRose, Mike DeWine, the Attorney General Dave Yost to all speak up and say, hey, 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 we shouldn't be limiting it. We boasted last year about how effective our system was. We should preserve it. Be interesting to see. Yeah, it's pretty obvious to me that LaRose, who we should note is also a Republican, is is involved in some of these discussions. But we're just not sure, you know, how much he's pushing back against some of the bigger restrictions that they're they're talking about. So, yeah, they also might they tried this last time. They might prohibit the state from providing postage paid envelopes with the absentee ballot applications that they they sent out. So, you know, and they might eliminate early voting on the Monday before Election Day and add those hours to other days. So, you know, we just don't know what's going to be in the mix here. But LaRose said he's hopeful that it's not going to move us in the wrong direction. And we're a national leader direction already. He's the guy that limited the ballot drop boxes. Right. Act like he's a champion of easier voting. Throw the flag. He wasn't. (laughs) He made it harder. We'll have to see. We're going to be all over this. And if they do things that make it harder, we're going to stress it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why has Cleveland City Council refused for more than a century to let the public speak at its weekly meetings? And is that about to change? Leila Tassi, this has come up over the years occasionally as an issue that the public doesn't get to speak at these council meetings, whereas with every other government around, people do get to speak. Uh, And it's never been a thing here. Why not? And what's happening? Well, they say the reason they've never had public comment is that the ward based system in Cleveland means that constituents can go to their council representative with their problems instead of, you know, airing them on the floor of council. But other big cities in Ohio, as you noted, you know, including Akron, Columbus, Youngstown, they have a public comment portion at council meetings. So six council members support legislation that would make it so here in Cleveland. Harry McCormick, Bashir Jones, Brian Casey, Jasmine Santana, Charles Slife, and Jenny Spencer plan to introduce this legislation at the urging of this organization called Clevelanders for Public Comment, which is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) Kevin, Kevin Kelly, the council president, said that he wants to study the issue. So he's having council's research staff look at it, and then the the legislation would be presumably sent to council's rules and operations committee for a further discussion. That sounds like it's really kicking the can down the road for some reason, probably clear into the summer session when they all take a big break. You know, look, I, I covered Cleveland City Hall for, I don't know, more than five years. Those Monday night council meetings, with all due respect to city council, they could be really dreadful. You know, they're long, they're boring. And that's the exact same word I would use. Yeah, they're because I, I did, <laughs> you I covered too, council it, too, right? They're right, capped off. They're horrible. Much, they feel like this eternity of council members kind of taking their own sweet time to say whatever tickles their fancy. The very last thing I would want is for those meetings to last any longer than they already do. But I never could understand why the public isn't allowed to comment at those meetings or at committee meetings. You know, what's what's being proposed here sounds pretty reasonable. It would be limited to a half hour of public comment with each speaker getting three minutes. If you don't get to speak, you get priority at the next meeting. And I don't see what the problem is with that. And I I really don't see why council needs to research this. 
I mean, what, no, what, they, what could go wrong here? I don't know. They could do it. Part of the issue is, is that the real work on legislation isn't done in that Monday night meeting. It's done in a series of committee meetings where they really hash it out and the administration is at the table and the council members that have something to say about it are there. And there is a chance if people ask permission that they can speak to the council committees when the legislation is being hashed out, but it's not automatic and it's by permission only. But the thing about those council meetings is you're in this incredibly ornate chamber and every council member and every major member of the mayor's administration are in the room at the same time. And so when I covered it, they didn't have the rules Kevin Kelly imposed. Mm -hmm. You could wander up while they're droning on reading the captions to the legislation and talk to anybody. This was the place where anybody was accessible and members of the public could as well. They've changed it now where you got to everybody has to sit in their seats and it sounds even more dreadful than when I was there. The worst part of the meeting was when the council members got up. I rise to drone on about some nonsense thing. And they they would look at the reporters to see if we were taking notes. (laughs) So as soon as that part of the session began, I always put my notebook away. It's like, doesn't matter what you say. I'm not going to give oxygen to your nonsense. I, I, I would rather them, instead of just adding on to the meeting, stop the council people from talking altogether and have the public replace it. Instead of having the council people rise to blather on, which they have plenty of chance to do, let the public rise and then the meeting stays the same length. I totally I, agree. I, oh, go ahead, Laura, please. This is Laura Johnston. I just want to say, you know, every suburban council lets people talk mm-hmm. and you could talk about something on the agenda. You sign up ahead of time. Sometimes if it's not on the agenda, they make you wait till after the business of the meeting. But that would be a, a possibility for people to come in and bring up something completely new that the council members might not even know about. And sure, you could say they could go to their council member, but I think it's a no brainer. I mean, county council does this. It seems like this is the meeting for the people and the people should be allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. Well said. You're listening <laughs> to this week in the CLE. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish wants to give county workers a 12th holiday every year. Kind of stunning that they already have 11. So what is this one for? And does this have anything to do with the fact that Budish is up for re-election next year? Laura Johnston, we have Courtney Astolfi putting together the list of the, the holidays they have. because none Oh, of us good, because I looked it up. I looked it up in the HR manual. I I looked it up too. (laughs) That's funny. They they have all the regular bank holidays like that you would expect. The only extra one is the day after Thanksgiving is their extra. But I mean, everything else is like Columbus Day, Veterans Day, Martin Luther King Day, President's Day. So anything the bank gets, the county gets, plus the day after Thanksgiving. What do they want to do now? So they want to add Juneteenth, which is June 19th. It celebrates the end of slavery in the United States, not you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, but two and a half years later, that when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, and declared the end of slavery in the Civil War, freed those who remained in bondage. So this holiday has become more well known, I would say, in the last several years. And the idea is to recognize it with a day off. And that would be for all eligible county employees, including full-time and part-time workers who are eligible for benefits, to get paid time off for the day. This would require council approval. Well, look, I'm all for making Juneteenth a holiday. I think mm-hmm. that's a great idea, but replace one. You get rid of Columbus <laughs> oh, Day, yeah. get rid of President's Day. To just give the county employees another day off, nobody else gets that. That is a pure political ploy by a guy 
who looks more and more like he's going to run for real. Can I, can I jump in here? This is Layla Tassi. Go ahead. I thought we were bagging Columbus Day. You know, I feel like every year this comes up and we no one ever takes a step toward it. But didn't we collectively decide that Christopher Columbus was a total scumbag and didn't deserve (laughs) a day? I mean, this is a day honoring a homicidal tyrant who initiated the Atlantic slave trade and the American Indian genocide. Those are two of the greatest crimes in the history of the Western Hemisphere. And and how it's cognitive dissonance to now celebrate Juneteenth. And then also celebrate Columbus Day. That that I, those that, two things actually, can't coexist. That's a good point. I don't disagree The argument with you. for Columbus Day is that it honors Italian Americans, and so people have suggested doing that elsewise. But there yeah. is no other ethnicity or heritage that gets a holiday. St. Patrick's Day, you could say it's a de facto right. holiday. You have to work. work, but it's mm-hmm. not a holiday. So right. it would be easy to dump that. What my trouble is, is that the county just unilaterally deciding, let's pay people for another day not to work. I mean, it seems like more and more, that's what this county likes to do. This is Jane Cahoon. Did they already give them off election day? Because there was a lot of talk about making that, you know, that a national is holiday. Not listed as an official day in the HR, but maybe that is going to be coming. My thought was. Just wondering, there was, you know, some talk about that. My thought to, was to connect this back to two earlier stories, that maybe this is just to keep all that talent that Budish hired that keeps resigning and leaving, or maybe that he doesn't think they're really going to be able to get paid that furlough pay back. You're, you're getting into a serious disconnect between non-government, non-bank people and regular working people. They, the regular people don't get Columbus Day and President's Day. I mean, they get maybe five or six holidays a year. And giving a 12th just seems excessive. And, you know, again, it's a year and a half away when he'll be running for re-election. And this makes all the county workers appreciate it. So let's use the county's taxpayer money to give people an inducement. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many ways did Ohio's state and county health boards fail us when it comes to collecting data during the pandemic? And what won't we be able to learn from it as a result? Jen Cahoon, Laura Hancock delivered just a superb story over the weekend on this topic. Uh, We had talked about this, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and she went out and she just nailed it. She provided a a wealth of information that we're not going to have. (laughs) What did did she find? Yeah, it kind of arose over the discussion about, you know, we've done so much about all these lessons we have learned from the pandemic. And she went in there and focused on some really important things that we could have learned if we had better systems for collecting data and analyzing it. You know, it's interesting. There, there was an acknowledgement many months ago from, from Governor Mike DeWine that we've completely ignored public health in this state for years and that we were paying a price for that. You know, no investment in the data infrastructure or the people power that they need to, to run it. And there was an interesting quote from a, an interview the governor did recently with the Washington Post. He said, having good data in real time is vitally important because we now have the ability to reach people in real time through the internet, through the 24-hour news cycle. But many times our data isn't as good as our ability to get it out or not as timely as our ability to get it out. So Laura gave some real specifics on this. Here, here's a depressing statistic. The Health Policy Institute of Ohio found that Ohio ranks 48th out of 50 states and Washington, D.C. in public health spending per person in 2019. 
which is the most recent year for which they have data. And we've talked before about we have this infectious disease reporting system that's two decades old, and it was due to be replaced around the time that the coronavirus arrived. But they thought, the state officials thought, you know, it's just not the right time to unveil a new computer system and and because everybody was so busy and, and overwhelmed. But, you know, as a consequence, we we lack a good contact tracing system. It was hindered and, and couldn't really investigate exactly how the virus was spreading. Plus, the whole system's decentralized. So you have like 113 local health departments doing their own thing with with the state merely acting in an advisory role. So we weren't very good at pinpointing things like hotspots or super spreader events. And then, you know, there's so much detail in this story, so people should read it. But just real quickly, we had this user unfriendly system for, for vaccination signups, and we didn't gather enough racial and ethnic data to get a clear picture of the disproportionate impact the virus had on people in minority groups. And there's computer systems that don't communicate with each other across departments. So as I said, I'm summarizing, there's there's a lot of good detail in there. But basically, yeah, we're we're lacking in the data department. What's sad is is this there's a moment here where we could change that. But because of the supermajority of the Republicans who many of whom are dead set against pandemic response, if we were to review the current state of public health, it would get worse and not better. I mean, I don't believe that the Republicans who refuse to wear masks when they're in session are going to say, yeah, let's get a much better data response so that we can do things to restrict people that would stop the spread of the virus. So it's a terrible moment to be learning this because we could fix it right here, right now, but there's no will on the people that we've elected because we have gerrymandered districts that frankly put a bunch of lunatics down there and who who were not really about serving the public or keeping people safe. Can I add here something? This is Laura Johnston. I just read Laura Hancock's story last night and I was floored by some of the detail that she had in here. Jane, you mentioned that we didn't we don't have a good system for making appointments for vaccinations, but I had no idea that a Columbus nonprofit put together one, like a website that worked way better than our state website. That to <laughs> right. me was astounding. And it cost taxpayers nothing where we spent $3.6 million or something like that on the official right. system. It's like, it's like you guys talked about last week when I was off about the vaccine queens that we should just like hand over everything to them, <laughs> right? It's like, why, are, why do we have a state health department? We should just outsource everything. Right. If we were going to be methodical here, I think there'd be a determination that county health boards are a failure. They're not accountable. They're slow. They're secretive. I mean, they have been one of the most eye-opening government failures of this pandemic, and they don't answer to even the state health department. The state health department, because of budget cuts, has computers that are from the Fred Flintstone era. This would be the time to use some of the stimulus money to rejuvenate it, build a system where you can really do contact tracing, figure out how things are spreading. But it, it turns out the people doing that are the private people. Layla has chronicled the vaccine queens. They've done more to get people vaccinated right. than any other government agency. And it's just sad that, that... Let's give them the stimulus money and they can fix it. I mean, what Laura did was to encapsulate it all. Here is the current state of what we're not doing right. It's a roadmap to fixing it, and we have no will to fix it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
How does a central Ohioan who served her country and started a business end up accused as one of the leaders of the January insurrection at the U.S. Capitol? Leila Tassi, John Caniglia put together a pretty detailed profile. What did he find? Well, it's a it's a long story, but but like many people, it seems that 38-year-old Jessica Watkins became kind of brainwashed by right-wing extremism during the Trump years, which which fed on her sense of patriotism as a U.S. Army veteran. Watkins is from Champaign County, which is in Western Ohio, and she is facing some of the most severe accusations related to the Capitol insurrection. Federal prosecutors say that she trained and coordinated militia members for this event and then led them into the Capitol as Congress was, of course, preparing to certify Joe Biden as the winner of the election. And authorities identified her as a member of the Oath Keepers, which is a far right group that believes that elected leaders are taking away Americans' rights. So according to court filings, Watkins left the military in 2004. She kind of floated about after that. She did some IT work on the East Coast. She moved to North Carolina, where she became a firefighter. And then she moved back to Ohio and worked in retail for a while. And she eventually opened a bar near Columbus called the Jolly Roger. And in these years, she also founded the Ohio State Regular Militia to help law enforcement and safety forces with security during state emergencies. But the militia's focus really shifted this past year. And of course, we now know she and members are accused of ending up breaching the Capitol. The story of how Watkins, how, how her mind became warped sounds a lot like stories others have told about their family members who kind of fell down the QAnon rabbit hole. Her, her bar was doing really well before the pandemic shut down. And then during the lockdown, when times were really hard for her, she became more immersed in right-wing conspiracy theories and propaganda and very active on, on the social media sites that are geared toward that messaging. And you know, there have just been so many stories about this kind of cult-like brainwashing that took hold here, especially among people who, you know, many people said were pretty normal and stable before falling down that, you know, rabbit hole. And, and social media really amplified that. It's so tragic. I hope that psychological researchers can kind of examine this so that we can safeguard our society in the future, because this is just such a such a bizarre phenomenon. Well, the odd thing is, is that she and many others are saying now, I'm sorry, I, I, I just want to be done with this. I, I apologize. Like it should be over. Right. And they participated in an attempt to basically overthrow our democracy. I mean, this is the, the highest of high crimes when you are working against your own government to overthrow it and to think that oh, oops, it was just a whim. You know, yeah, I want to move on with my life. Not going to happen. This right. is serious stuff. You're going to go to prison. You're going to pay for this. You know, there was a time when that kind of treasonous behavior would get you executed. And and they, and it's like, you know, I, that was a phase of my life and I, I'm moving into new phases now. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to pay attention to this one anymore. Right. Um, and, surprise. you know, so many of them have made the argument that they thought they were following the command and order of the president. And that well, that's, gets complicating well, because then you feel but, like you are a patriot. You're following your your commander in chief into battle or something crazy. Yeah, but the commander in chief can't tell you to go rob banks and you use that as a defense. I mean, 
Donald Trump sparked this insurrection. Donald Trump should be held to account. And, you know, we were wondering last week, whatever happened to the criminal investigation of that, it's probably going on in the background. There's no doubt about it. The president of the United States tried to get his government overthrown so that he could remain in power. It's astounding. And goofy followers, you know, dressed like loons, all went down there to help him out. And it's paper thin line how close we came to total chaos. I know. I still can't believe it happened. I mean, it's, it's yeah. flabbergasting to even remember. And the it. violence. Let's not forget the violence. Sorry, this is Jane Cahoon. Yeah, people died as a result of what Donald Trump sparked. And, you know, and today there are people trying to say, oh, he didn't spark that. It's like, we all have eyes. We all saw it. You can't change the facts just because you say something's not true. Right. I can just look at Josh Mendel. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did the fight over the proposed demolition of a landmark Mexican-American social club end up in a compromise that left everyone pretty much happy? Laura Johnston, when this story first came out a month ago, it looked like it was an ugly one. But all of a sudden, all is well. Yeah, they reached a great compromise. The development of new apartments is going to officially memorialize Club Azteca, and that's in the Detroit Shoreway neighborhood, with some sculptures and traditional Mexican artwork, maybe in the courtyard. They're still working on designs, but the developers also agreed to put money towards an endowment for the benefit of the Mexican-American community, and that would be overseen by the Cleveland Foundation. And the idea is that they are commemorating a culture here rather than like paving it over. And so it's not so much about this building, which had been in disrepair for a decade and like the roof is collapsed in, but it's just recognizing what was here before and the role that it played in the Detroit Shoreway neighborhood. And that was the idea of the Latino advocates that just didn't want to see a brand new apartment building, you know, going up and no one ever knowing the history behind it. Yeah, it was nice to see that everybody came together to honor the legacy and allow the development to go through. Because like I said, a month ago when the, the commission postponed a vote, it was because there was all this discord. So clearly the developer knew what they had to do to work it out. We're right. listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did the U.S. Justice Department ask for a two-month continuance in the case of the former Cleveland schools therapist who was charged in the January 6th insurrection in the U.S. Capitol? Leila Tassi, the, the story on this was filled with all sorts of facts and figures that I'm not sure we had seen in quite that form before. Right. So in a nutshell... They have so many cases to deal with stemming from the insurrection that they're just kind of swamped and can't get to the case involving Cleveland Schools therapist Christine Priola for a couple months. My colleague John Coniglia reported that 300 people have been arrested across the United States. Charges have been filed against at least 100 people. Investigators have received more than 210,000 tips. They have written more than 80,000 reports, and they've viewed more than 15,000 hours of surveillance and body camera video. They also seized about 1,600 electronic devices. That's just a ton of data, a ton of information. So yeah, they are, they are swamped. They're prioritizing cases involving defendants who are still detained, and Priola was released on bond. So she kind of goes into the second tier of priority. She hasn't been indicted yet. Those charges could come in June, but she's been accused of knowingly entering or remaining in a restricted building, violent entry, and unlawful activities on Capitol grounds. 
you know, readers and listeners would probably remember that Priola was the person who was photographed in the Senate chambers holding that sign that said the children cry out for justice. The day after the insurrection, she resigned from from her position at uh, CMSD, submitting this letter that was filled with all the QAnon conspiracy theories about the government's endorsement of pedophilia and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, it'll be a couple months before we we probably hear any updates about about this local case. It's one of those rare cases where the the accused criminals provided all the evidence to the I investigators know. It's so through brazen. their social media accounts. I mean, they just they put up photos, they boasted about what they did, and it's just it's like you know. I think police wish every crime went this way. The criminal commits the crime, they put the evidence of it online. And then you just go and get it. But uh, <laughs> the fact that this could have, you know, one of the biggest sets of defendants in the history of the Justice Department is what's staggering. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that ends the Monday discussion. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Mm-hmm.